I try not to live in the space of regret. It was, let's figure this out. What do we do next? When you become in tune to listening to yourself, there's a pressure point, you know, like you have to get out. Otherwise things are going to go like super left. So I started to get into that habit of listening to myself a little bit more. Even though those conversations maybe with myself were kind of slightly newer, I wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit more at that point. When it comes to the creativity, yeah. Oh, we're just launching straight in there. You don't know what the question we're going to ask you. <laughs> you know, with creativity, can you be born with it or can you learn it? It's a combination of both, I mm-hmm. think. Everyone is born with um, an element of creativity. I suppose creativity is just a means of um, approaching problem solving, right? In our formative education or kind of at primary school, we all do a breadth of subjects mm-hmm. and a lot of it is about being as expansive as possible, uh, exploring different ways of being. And I think slowly but surely, as we continue our education, uh, people start to filter out those things that they're less interested in, right? Um, and maybe focus on things which are slightly more analytical mm-hmm. or logical in that sense. Um, And so to that point, in terms of learning, it is definitely something that can be learned, but something that we're all born with Mm -hmm. is my kind of take on that anyway. With creativity, just in general sense, Mm -hmm. versus the logical, I feel like logical, it's like maths, you know, there's an answer, there's an end point. Mm -hmm. But what I'm starting to realise more and more is that with creativity, there's no such thing as a right or wrong answer. It's about being comfortable and saying what, you're creating, because like I remember <clears throat> when I was a dancer, yeah, and <laughs> when I was a dancer, and then it came to the freestyle yeah. bit, right? And I always hated freestyling because even again when I played the saxophone, I hated it because it felt unnatural for me to just play what I'm feeling. Whereas in the back of my mind, because of like I'm quite, I was quite academic. I felt there should have been a right way to do certain things. So it always felt a bit unnatural. So even like with drawing, for example, Mm. I don't feel I can draw, but I see some people who draw worse than me, Mm. able to create a living out of that, right? (laughs) Okay, subtle shade. Subtle shade. (laughs) For you, when did you realise that you're a creative person? I think just to touch on the points that you've just made, I think this idea of being in the unknowing is really important. Um, and is also something that takes a lot of practice, right? Um, I think there's also this element of vulnerability in being in a space of unknowing and being okay with that. So, uh, because you mentioned that you felt really uncomfortable in kind of those freestyle elements, but it's something that um, I think some people are maybe born intuitively with that kind of or in that space of the unknowing but then there are lots of people who have to go through a process of unlearning to get there Um, and actually I think it's a really liberating space to exist in Um, and for me in terms of when I first realized or kind of got the sense of creativity I think it was very early on Um, I don't necessarily remember or I can't necessarily pinpoint the first moment but even when I look back um, at pictures 
of my like little me in like nursery I was always doing something that involved like a making um so I think that is of course the origin point and um I suppose where I perhaps felt most at home mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's the starting point really mm -hmm. did you always feel that at some point you were going to do something in the creative industries Yes and no, uh, and I say yes because those are the things that I've always gravitated towards. Uh, Subject-wise, it's always been kind of the creative subjects. I think I was always one of those people who was I was also I was always actually quite academic, but then I was also very creative. So um, I remember even kind of as a child in primary school, whatever, I would always finish my test before everyone. I, like, I would always be the first to get things done. So I remember, like, my teacher used my homework or, like, my answers to mark everyone else's stuff because, like, I kind of excelled academically in that space or in that way. Um, and so in terms of the career aspect of it, I always wanted to keep that going along, but... Um, of course, it's that like stereotypical trope of having Nigerian parents and being <laughs> like, ah, I don't know if um, kind of doing something in the creative industries would really work. So I suppose for me, as I kind of continued my kind of schooling career, so to speak, um, and thinking about what a career path might look like. So I think I then continued to search for... Um, what might be something in the middle. Um, and I don't think I really arrived at what that would be until, yeah, until I was in college mm -hmm. and kind of applying for my UCAS. And so for me, at that point, what I thought um, would be a good meeting of creativity um, and I suppose something which maybe seemed a little bit more normal to Nigerian parents was like to go into marketing. Okay. So I applied for marketing mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, all of my university kind of uh, offers were based on studying um, marketing. I was just like, oh yeah, this could be cool. Obviously now you're a curator, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. obviously that wasn't on the cards going from oh, marketing no, to be a curator. Um, Didn't even know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> And so, like, did you wash at university because um, you also done, like, architecture and interior mm -hmm. design? Like, how did, how did we get to that point? Me kind of deciding to apply for marketing was much more of a consolation prize because I went to, you know, you have these, like, career advisors mm -hmm. in um, colleges or whatever. I went to go and see the one um, kind of at the college that I was attending. And she was just like, oh, yeah, you, you won't get into university <laughs> to wow. study architecture. And I remember feeling like, really disheartened I think I actually cried you know me I don't cry that is um but yeah I remember feeling really um disheartened actually after that and um yeah I went and had a really long and hard thought about it I was like okay I'm gonna apply for marketing but a part of me was also like oh I'm gonna make sure that I get really great grades um kind of as a means of um showing her that I could do it right and so I did. Uh, and then on the day that um, I received my results, I called up. So I had an unconditional offer, actually. So I was, like, guaranteed to go to university anyway. Um, but I called up the University of Kent, and I was just like, 
hey guys, um, I actually really want us to study architecture. Do you have any space on your course? Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, do you want to come and have an interview? Uh, and I was just like, yeah, I'd love to. So I remember I had to go and basically put together a portfolio take this train up to Canterbury to go and do uh, this interview and then I was accepted uh, onto the course. I don't think that architecture and art are too distant. I think that they're all kind of um, under this large umbrella of the art, so to speak. And um, that's probably one thing that really stands out for me when I look back in that. Um, I remember when I was looking at the prospectus for the University of Ken, um, Canterbury and looking at the way in which they talked about architecture, this is the thing that always sticks out to me is that they uh, described it as being the most public and pervasive of all the arts. And something about that um, really appealed to me. Um, I, like, I think I liked the broadness because um, uh, I don't know, I, I don't really like to commit too much to something. I like again, maybe in that idea of the openness or kind of, um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, actually that speaks to why I do all the stuff that I do now, mm -hmm. uh, because I like um, the openness, the porousness of kind of being able to be move between a multitude of things. Um, so that really spoke to me because I think initially I was like, oh, maybe I'll do interior design. I was like, oh, actually, if I do architecture, then that's kind of the broader umbrella of like, doing architecture and then in within that mm -hmm. there's like the interior um, design interior architecture and like all of the other stuff so I was like okay let me go as broad as possible mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the in-between step um, from like the marketing to the architecture and then I actually ended up changing the course because I felt that perhaps um, I wasn't enjoying it as much as I thought as I would do. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll switch out to interior design. So I got to London, had a new university, um, went there, that was okay. But actually, I suppose the, the course that I was on still, very, still felt very close to architecture. Um, again, and thinking about this umbrella of kind of architecture, interior architecture, interior design and all that type of stuff. Um, and actually a lot of the tutors that I had on the course had worked um, very closely with architects or were former architects in that sense. So I still felt that there was um, a good focus on, uh, I suppose, the exterior composition of a building as well as kind of um, the interior of buildings. So I felt yeah, pretty, pretty happy with that course. I mean, even with the dissertation that I wrote, there was still a focus on social housing, um, which I'd always been really interested in as a kind of um, concept in the ways that it formed communities. So those were, again, some of the things that I really pulled out that um, I was really interested in, which, Again, for me now, looking back, I can see it very much a part of um, a part of, or they've popped up in like really weird ways, mm -hmm. like as part of my career. What kind of stuff would you say? Um, so I suppose, okay, me kind of having that interest in social housing is also because I lived in such close proximity to some of those housing estates that I referenced in kind of. That, that dissertation, but also living in that context myself as well. Um, and the work that I did 
at Tate, for example, as curator of their young people's programs, was all about um, ensuring that young people from disadvantaged backgrounds or kind of low social economic groups had access to those spaces, right? Um, and the majority of those young people would have lived somewhere where, like where I grew up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So kind of it popped up in those ways and mm. kind of it just became a part of the work. And so I suppose once I had graduated, uh, I had an internship, uh, <laughs> which I did. Um, and internships always make me laugh because I think they're great, but also really horrible at the mm. same time. Um, I think they've changed now. I hope they've changed Horrible. Now. How badly were they treating you? Oh, my God. Like a dog. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but at the time, a lot of internships weren't paid. Yeah. Um, I think that was maybe still an issue up until a couple of years ago. But it meant that um, at the time when I graduated, I was doing this internship, which was five days a week. I think, yeah, they were paying for my transport. Um, and then I think, oh my God, like when I, this is so dreadful. I think they were giving me like three pounds a day for lunch. Three pounds? Yeah, or something, maybe like five pounds max, um, which is crazy um, when you think about it. And again, in thinking about these ideas of equity and how you make um, kind of various sectors much more representative of a diverse range of thought, I think it becomes really difficult, especially in those circumstances when kind of that is the normal practice mm. um, to not kind of pay people because there is the assumption that people's parents will be able to pick up um, you know up. the bill when yeah exactly when that isn't the case for everyone so um, that was kind of part of my experience and I did that. Mm. Um, on that as well it's like you're just cutting off access even more yeah, so because um, absolutely. I remember like when people used to talk about Topshop and yeah. head office of Topshop, oh, yeah. where people are coming in and they're not being paid. Yeah. But then it's like, oh, so-and-so, they're living at their parents' house. Yeah. And so if you're someone who's graduated and you're not even, even if their salary is like, say, 16K, uh -huh. you can't really survive in London on 16K. No, like rent, can't. all the rest of it, like how can you do it? So you're just gatekeeping again. And yeah. then the whole system just continues to repeat itself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so that's like... A huge, huge issue, um, and again, I think that's something which uh, hopefully has changed now. Mm. Um, I know that there have been like a number of um, initiatives put in place, and again, when I talk about these types of things have cropped up in the work that I've done, kind of beyond that, and kind of going back to the work that I did at Tate, um, we had... You know, we had a group of young people, roughly around a, a group of 130 of them, um, which we worked with and recruited from kind of four local boroughs to the gallery. But the idea was that we were always um, giving these young people opportunities, but making sure that they were paid a London living wage, mm. right? Um, as opposed to just... Yeah, come and, out. you know, enjoy it. Come for the experience. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> for the experience, right? So um, it was about moving much more beyond that. So, yeah, that's why I feel like so many, um, so many of the things that I've experienced and then a lot of the things that I've then worked on have come full circle, so mm. to speak. And then I randomly got approached... <laughs> 
I randomly got approached on LinkedIn. Um, this is when people weren't using LinkedIn as Facebook. Um, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I randomly got approached on LinkedIn um, after I I think I wrote this blog post talking about why university doesn't work for I can't remember something along those lines right and one of the people at this um, recruitment agency came across it and they were like oh I like read the blog post I think you're amazing um we want you to come and work with us and I was just like wait I was just like trying to figure out if it was like a scam or wow. like some sort of catfish or whatever yeah. And they were like, no, 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 like legit, like come into our offices to um to do an interview. I was just like, okay, yeah. cool. Was it um, a similar role, like interior design? No, it wasn't. Okay. I like then moved into working in the recruitment side of things, which is yeah. <laughs> um super, super random. The recruitment agency specialized in architects, interior designers. <laughs> Um, and kind of any admin support um, for kind of working in the design field, right? Yeah, I remember um, I had to then quit this internship and it was like really weird because I, I remember um, I'd just graduated, I think I went on holiday with my mum and then came back and these people that I'd like gone to see this recruit, they were like, oh yeah, you've got the job or whatever. They're like, oh, we want you to start immediately. That was just like, <laughs> yikes. So um, I had to, I think I came back from this holiday. They were having like a summer party <laughs> and I like just about got there. And then I was just like, oh my God, I don't know how to tell these people that um, I'm leaving this job. No. So like I wrote a little card and I was just like, thank you. What, on the actual day? <laughs> on the summer party? Yeah, I wrote this card and left it there. Wow. <laughs> and I was just like, thanks for everything, guys. Um, but also at the same time, I was just like, you guys weren't paying me anyway. Yeah. So like... Yeah. Did yeah. they ever follow up? They did. They did. Um, I can't remember what was said, though. But um, yeah, they did. They were like, yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> and I think also because um, I'd also asked them if there were plans to like open up a role because it just wasn't very sustainable kind of working in that way. So um, I think without a kind of firm answer, I was just like, oh, I, I can't, can't do this yeah, long yeah. term. So, yeah, I mean, I ended up working in this uh, kind of recruitment space, which is interesting. Um, I did that for all but uh, three months mm-hmm. um, before <laughs> before leaving that. I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not normally a quitter, but um, yeah. Um, so I ended up leaving mm-hmm. um, because actually, if I'm being honest, I felt really miserable being there. And I felt really miserable in that... Um, I was helping people do the stuff that I wanted to do. So I just yeah. left this like um, role with hopes of being like an interior designer. And um, then I was helping people get jobs as interior designers. Mm. So I was just like, this is not... Um, Did you ever think about trying to place yourself uh, somewhere? Do you know what? When I did leave, they actually did try and place me somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, that's, you know, what recruiters do. Um, But that didn't really work out. Um, And so I got this job with this woman, like um, this, like, kind of one man band. Like, and she's looking for an assistant. I did that. She was she was very interesting. It was all of these, like, really. I mean, it's expected, but it's like. 
going to stores and lifting heavy things and I was just like this is not what for I signed me. up for. Yeah. Yeah. Um so and I also didn't necessarily feel like super involved in the design process. I mean I did design some things um which I feel like she then used, but didn't credit me. But anyway, that's, you know, by the by. So, yeah, I think that happened. And then I ended up getting a, a job as, like, a junior designer. It was still, like, a very small, like, company or whatever. I didn't really enjoy that that much because we were working on lots of residential projects and I suppose for me having done this dissertation and looking at like social housing and kind of why it works so well and all of that type of stuff I was just like oh am I contributing to the problem Mm -hmm. um because I'm working on these um new build um houses and it was all very monotonous as well because it was the same thing there was no um variation or whatever so that happened didn't last very long and I was just like oh god like I don't really feel like I necessarily want to work in this design space anymore I think I felt very again just kind of disheartened by kind of yeah the treatment or kind of some of the or maybe less so the treatment but the experiences that I'd had Mm -hmm. in that space Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. got it so then at this point you were like saying okay maybe design isn't for me yeah I was doing a lot of browsing on the internet Mm -hmm. and then I came across this young volunteer project at the London Transport Museum and that was um that was an invitation for I think it was like a six-week project and again connection to architecture (laughs) they were they uh were looking to uh explore city architecture because at the London Transport Museum have you ever been uh I just in my mind I just see buses yeah there are lots it's just lots of buses in um not Blackfriars Barbican no Covent Garden okay no okay well, you're right, it's lots of buses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> lots of buses and kind of train carriages. Mm. And um, they have this large um, kind of model in the gallery, which is or gallery called their Connections Gallery, which is basically this large, I think, one to 2,000 scale model of the City of London. They wanted to update that with lots of new London architecture, like... Um, kind of the strata at the Elephant and Castle, mm. the Gherkin, the Cheese Grace, you know, all of those like yeah. bits of architecture which have popped up like in the past 10 years. Um, and so that was like, I was just like, okay, this is kind of interesting. I was like feeling a bit disillusioned of architecture, but oh, it kind of, mm-hmm. kind of fits in with the narrative. So I did that project, which was super interesting. You know, the lady who was running this program mentioned that... Uh, the kind of young people's team kind of um, kind of at the gallery were looking to set up this programme for, um, for young people called their Young Freelancer Project. She was just like, oh, I think you'd be really great. Um, you should apply. It wasn't kind of a full-time position as such, um, but it was definitely a way to open the door into kind of moving into this... Um, arts and heritage space or kind of working in the context of museums so yeah I I end up doing this it's kind of a year-long program 
And um, as mentioned, it's not kind of like a full-time thing, but what they offer are these projects which you can kind of um, put yourself forward for. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that, did loads of those. Um, And it was a really interesting year in getting to know and understand the museum space and kind of what it meant uh, to work in the context of museums, but also um, at that point as well what it meant to engage with a public audience as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really kind of, um, yeah, very long way of sharing how we get from um, being in the space of architecture to kind of finally getting into the museum space. During, say, that period Mm -hmm. of, like, I guess, finding your feet, Mm -hmm. how was that mentally? Because <laughs> because you spend so much time right. um, studying something, mm-hmm. working towards it, getting a glimpse of it, getting a taste of it, mm-hmm. seeing working for these people, you're like, nah, these are these are rubbish. Like one thing which is commendable is the fact that you're like, this ain't serving me, so I'm out. Yeah. Did you ever feel that I should have stayed a bit longer to see if it pans out? I try not to live in the space of regret, so mm-hmm. there wasn't too much regret on that end. It was maybe more of a right, let's figure this out. What do we do next? Like, or like, how do we get to the next point? Or um, kind of more of a sense of urgency to kind of get something sorted out. So when you kind of become in tune to listening to yourself, kind of there's a kind of pressure point, you know, like you have to get out, otherwise things are going to go like super left. Mm. Um, So I think I started to get into that habit of listening to myself a little bit more, Mm -hmm. Um, even though even though those conversations maybe with myself were kind of slightly newer. um, But I, I wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit more at that point. When you went into the museums mm-hmm. and because I guess you were doing that like part-time alongside yeah. Offspring or yeah still working in Offspring man. <laughs> <laughs> getting, my, getting yeah. my free trainers getting my little <laughs> discount here and there you know <laughs> yeah but it's cool though because you get to kind of mesh the two worlds together mm. kind of see okay I'm actually because this time you actually are enjoying something because mm. you're sticking out for the 12 months and yeah. you're seeing okay maybe this progression here right, right. yeah um where they're like elements of the program where you're like saying, okay, this thing here, I want to double down on a little bit more. Um, I think the thing that I really enjoyed um, was definitely working with the public. And mm-hmm. again, uh, and when I say working with the public in the context of any workshops um, that we had kind of put on for young people, but also I really enjoyed doing tours because there was a depot in Acton because, of course, like, it's the London Transport Museum, which is based in Covent Garden, but they had this depot in, like, North Acton, which, like, yeah, just... It's basically um, kind of the archive. Um, So there are more buses. Mm. (laughs) More buses and more train carriages, um, but then also all of the kind of broader kind of um, ephemera and kind of documents and items and objects which relate to London Transport's um, kind of history, which is super interesting to me um, in just being in the presence of those things that have existed before I did. Yeah. Um, so those that was one of the things that I kind of really enjoyed as well as, um, as mentioned, um, kind of working with the public. Yeah. Yeah, so what happened next after that? 
2017, I then get kind of invited to do this postgrad in academic practice in art design and communication um, at the University of the Arts London, which is really amazing because uh, that was also offered to me on as a bursary, so I didn't have to pay for it. Nice which is really amazing. So I was just like, oh my God, okay, cool. I had always thought about teaching, but I always thought it was going to be like an end of end of career thing, you know, when you're like 55 or Giving whatever. Back to the community. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> I was just like, mm, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that later on. So I never thought that I would do that so early in my career, but um, I really welcomed it, actually. It was really great. So I did this, um, this post-grad, it was a year-long um, I learned about what it meant to teach in the context of the university and I started teaching um, so I become I became an associate lecturer at the University of the Arts London um, and for me it was kind of a trip actually because there were um, I was just like not you lot paying like nine thousand pounds a year and I'm the same age as you yeah. and I'm teaching you so it was like kind of weird for me kind of especially working with um, the kind of students that were doing their masters because we were basically the same age mm. I think it was a great experience for me and um, it also took into consideration the experience um, that I'd built in and alongside that so kind of I did that um, and was doing multiple projects with other museums in and around doing that and then in 2018 I got my first like my first art job yeah that was that was interesting um, you're finally I, ready to let go of Osprey yeah <laughs> well do you know what actually I was still working at Osprey <laughs> Everyone's be like, oh, another yeah. hustle. Um, yeah, I was actually still working at Offspring while I started at Tate. I think for the first like two months, I mm. was still working at Offspring whilst I started at Tate. And then I was just like, oh, no, I have it's to. Yeah. yeah, it was too much. So um, I did an assistant curator role, another assistant curator role, and then I got a permanent assistant curator role. <laughs> <laughs> All of this within like literally the first. Uh, first year I had wow. like three roles or whatever and then um I was in that role I so I got this this permanent role right as an assistant curator then a role as curator came up in another team I went and applied for it <laughs> like I think this must have been that like, I think I was in the role for all that kind of permanent role of um assistant curator for all but of like I want to say two months or mm. something like that three months max and then I applied for this Oof. curator role gone <laughs> Because how did you know that? Because um, how did you know that you wanted to become a curator, especially when you were like? Because you could have spent most of your time being a lecturer if you wanted. Yeah. To. You could have doubled down on that. Yeah. Right. So how did you know that curation is where you wanted to be? Um, I think. The reason why I knew it was where I wanted to be is because I was really interested in working in the context of the museum mm -hmm. um, and working with artists. And, you know, I think education plays a hugely important role in... Um, I think one of the things that I was really interested in in education is um, the space for play. I think it's really important to play um, and to play with ideas and to explore. Um, but also, when I talk about this idea of play, is on the, the other end of that challenge. Um, and I think there's something really important about challenging thought, and I don't mean in a combative sense, but um, in kind of giving um, the opportunity for an exchange of dialogue to create new ideas. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I, I enjoyed all of that very much so, but I liked being around objects and things yeah. and kind of 
you don't have that in the university. It's just people. Fair, fair, I like fair. people, but yeah. you know, <laughs> I also like things and objects too. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to to do, so mm. to speak. And I actually tried for a really long time to like to balance that. So actually, while I was working at Tate, even though I kind of went up, I was still lecturing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was still doing that. So I was still balancing it, which I think actually really served me very well because I like to take um, from all of those areas and kind of I I. I thought and I still feel that all of those things feed each other. So mm. it's like, okay, I'm doing this within my teaching practice. This works great within the context of the museum. And especially because I was working um, primarily around museum education, there were lots of crossovers mm. in that sense. Um, so yeah, that's how or kind of why I felt that those things went really well together. Because mm. with, with, with education and curation, like I see there is quite a close mm -hmm. link because... Mm -hmm. As a curator, you've kind of got a lot of responsibility in mm. terms of showcasing to the public what is art, what is not art, what is valuable, what's not valuable, mm -hmm. right? Um, when it comes to those discussions with your colleagues right. around, say, the curation of certain objects, mm -hmm. is it collaborative or can it be quite combative in terms of deciding what is good versus what is not? So mm, yeah, uh, I think there's definitely an element of that. I think it can, for the most part, I think it's harmonious. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, people are really passionate about what they're passionate about, right? And um, I think a lot of the passion over particular objects or artworks come, comes from a very deep-seated kind of uh, personal connection to those things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so in that sense, that's that's where things can become political, right? I don't think there's kind of necessarily too much of a discussion of what is good and bad art. I think, and take this as a pinch of salt, I think all art is good, right? Um, in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that there's going to be somebody out there who's going to appeal to, right? So is that how you define art? Right. No, absolutely. Because I think art is about mirroring our experiences in life, mm. but also as a means of kind of um, not predicting the future, but it gives us space to dream or think of kind of what exists beyond us. Right. So kind of I, I can't come and deny and be like, oh, that's that's terrible. It might it might not kind of sit close to my experiences. Um, so kind of aesthetically, I might not enjoy it, but I can't deny its meaning to somebody else, right? So in that sense, that's why I say that there's no bad art because mm -hmm. it it means some it means something to somewhere out there, someone out there. Right? So when when you're curating an exhibition, so mm -hmm. let's take the Rites of Passage one as an example you're basing that off your own personal mm -hmm. feeling or what the feeling you think it can give other people? Like, how do you go about, say, creating an experience such as that? Mm. Um, so Rites of Passage, um, specifically, has actually been something um, which has been a thought of mine for a really long time. Not in kind of this... I suppose, final iteration as people have seen it, but mm. in thinking about these ideas of liminality and liminal space. Um, what do you mean by that? So I suppose liminality or liminal space, um, it's this term which was coined by this um, anthropologist, Arnold van Gennep, 
um, which speaks to these different uh, different transitional periods in a person's life. So kind of be it marriage, birth, death, um, kind of processes of ritual. Um, but really he splits it into these uh, three stages of separation, transition, um, and this idea of return. And I suppose in thinking about my personal connection to this idea of liminality or the liminal space, um, that I think that started from kind of the point at which I was cognizant of the fact that my family are Nigerian. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think for, for anybody who grows up in the diaspora, kind of wondering why the kind of social cues within your home are different from kind of what you experience socially um, kind of creates this conversation about kind of as I was using the language then duality kind of what does it mean to kind of be both British and Nigerian so I'd always been thinking about these things in kind of how my culture differed from somebody else's culture so that for me is a starting point um, and as I continue to have conversations with friends who were also experiencing similar things or kind of I started to read more broadly um, I kind of then arrive at this point of using this language of the liminal or liminality in probably again I want to say 2018 mm -hmm. because yeah before then I've been using the language of duality and kind of being kind of two things but um for me, I think that's so limiting because it is a binary. It is kind of either or. It is yeah. just these two things. Um, and that's why I was saying earlier on this idea of the unknowing. It kind of becomes something which is really important. And kind of that space of the unknowing is also very liberatory because you can be as expansive as you like about your experiences. So kind of, um, yeah, that that's really the starting point. Um, and I think that's actually if we even look at academia that is always the, a great starting point for research in kind of thinking about something which is uh, kind of personal to you because without that then what are you basing it mm. on do you get what I mean yeah. there's a reason why people decide to research something it is because they have a connection to that otherwise they wouldn't be as invested in spending years of their life in kind of researching that thing so there's it always starts with a personal connection in mm. that sense it's like that freedom to have an opinion on something yeah rather than being directed by someone else to look at something yeah and um because even with art like now that i think about it everyone can have a viewpoint on anything but mm -hmm. it's about you being able to express it mm -hmm. and then whether people agree with your opinion or not it doesn't really matter it's about what you personally think is that yeah. right no, I think so, absolutely. Um, all right then, <laughs> art critique. I'm learning, I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, there, there's definitely that, right? Because it's, um, and again, that's why uh, kind of the conversation with self is so important. Mm -hmm. um, and why I was saying that um, when we're talking about creativity, that there is um, kind of a lot of learning and unlearning and it's a kind of transition as kind mm. of with this idea of the liminal space. It is a transitionary process um, at which it's never really finished, but something that we continue to move through. Yeah, because um, yeah, at the exhibition, just mm -hmm. walking through it, and the first thing that always got me is just the contrast of like the dark blue mm. versus like the colourful pieces. And then walking through and then you get to the end where it's the mirrors... I walked into a, it's a dark room, mirrors on the floor, picture at the top and you're looking down. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I believe it's meant to represent a slave ship, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you have the sounds going through it. It's quite, it's quite emotional, especially because I was there just by myself. And yeah. um, you kind of can feel the darkness just enveloping you, mm. right? Um, which I think is pretty cool. Like, how, how was the whole process of putting that experience together, like working with the artists? Are these people that you've already known for a long time? Um, did you research them? Like, how did it go? Yeah, so i say... The majority of the artists in the show, I want to say like 90% of them I've worked mm. with at some point in my career. So again, I think um, that idea of rites of passage functions in a multitude of ways, right? Um, in for me, the show feels like a rite of passage and mm. kind of putting something like this together. But then also um, kind of all of these artists who have been very kind of key to my my journey my transition all being part of this for them coming together collectively it also signifies something very important in a kind of broader art historical sense as well so one of the artists I met uh kind of in very early days um Phoebe Boswell I met her um before I'd got my job at Tate and kind Mm -hmm. of at a project at the Wacom Collection, and then kind of some of the other artists like um, Adelaide Damwa um, and Ambonio and Aisha Faisal, I met literally kind of on my first projects at Tate wow. as an assistant curator. So like in a way, they they met me as a baby. Like and we're kind <laughs> of it's weird um, because like we've developed friendships and kind of sisterhood, like kind of these uh, weird familial relationships um but kind of they've been part of the journey with me so yeah Mm. no I love that it's like you have to keep those connections right yeah no absolutely um it's definitely it's definitely that um I think as we were talking about earlier on in um thinking about one of my my previous careers Mm. um and kind of relationships are really important um and again especially with art and the fact that we're dealing with um a lot of those artists personal experiences within the work those relationships and how you handle them and how you handle their work with care is really important so Mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of all about the relationship really Mm -hmm. so for someone who's new to the scene has not necessarily familiar with um like art or museums in general because a lot of your work is Mm -hmm. to do with connecting people with the arts and obviously in the UK all they seem to do is just like keep cutting 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 funding Mm -hmm. which is making it even more difficult so how does someone even start like to get used to it because I feel when people talk about art like as a normal person the first idea that comes to mind is making money which Mm. isn't necessarily a bad thing which will probably be my second question but like how can people try and get closer towards the arts as it were um luckily living in the uk most of our museums and galleries are free Mm. um which i think is a great way to get started i think one of the things which is probably the most difficult which again um, you know, thinking back to the work that I did at Tate, which is all about um, improving access to it. I think the first, I think the biggest hurdle is for people to actually kind of leave their homes and step over the threshold of the museum in the first instance. Mm-hmm. 
but actually they're all free so you can go and see them anytime that you want well within their opening <laughs> hours um but actually i think i mean actually that's that's actually a really important point um because often people are working so maybe uh, opening times feel a little bit difficult but most museums are open kind of 10 to 6 daily um if we're talking about kind of national museums um kind of like a Tay or V&A, they might do like a um, a late opening on a Friday. So like you can go there until nine o'clock, mm. which is great. Or um, they do these Friday lates. So um, it's not, it's, I think Friday lates, which I got to work on um, a little bit just before leaving Tate. I did a number of um, Tate uh, late at Britain, um, uh, later Tate later Britons, Tate. oh my god L- Not me forgetting what the <laughs> title's called But yeah, the Later Tate Britons I, I think I did maybe about three of them just before I left But those are um, A really great entry point For people who are not quite sure About the museum because it's kind of um, A once a month It's a late opening until like 9.30, 10 o'clock um, There's often music There's often alcohol Um which like shouldn't be like a huge signing point, oh, but it helps, it helps. can work, yeah. Um, but also kind of things which sit slightly outside of just the regular displays, which would be um, workshops, performances, um, things that are really engaging for people. So I think that's a great entry point um, for people who like. I don't know, for students, for young people, um, for older people who are maybe approaching it for the first time to kind of um, do that as like a fun thing with friends or like on a date night or mm-hmm. like, yeah, I, I think it's, or even like as a as a single person exploring a new city, I think it's a great way to kind of meet people. Um, so yeah, I think that's a starting point. But yeah, the fact that the majority of, museums are free is is really brilliant the only thing that you will probably have to pay for are some exhibitions Mm. um which again i I know that kind of conversations around ticket prices can be a little bit tricky especially in the context of like the cost of living prices with exhibitions i feel like when so for example when you go to a museum and Mm -hmm. you say that oh there's this exhibition going on you gotta pay for something Mm -hmm. and you gotta pay to enter they don't make it appealing as to why you should go in to see this exhibition versus the rest of the gallery. Mm. Um, that's how I feel personally. Right. Like it's, it hasn't really sold it to me. And I think with some of the museums or the galleries that you go to, there's a lot of emphasis on the past, mm-hmm. not necessarily on the artists, which are actually making some great pieces of work right yeah. now. And that for me is where it seems to be like a gap because okay yeah you can show me some 17th century mm-hmm. french art it's not going to do anything for me right right but then show me something from somebody who grew up in london mm-hmm. and they now have an exhibition in new york or chicago like where those people like you know to make it a bit more closer to home yeah um yeah yeah that's what i find quite difficult that's why going to your exhibition for example yeah. it meant more to me that because these are artists that are still alive to an extent, right? And they're making stuff which is which can still evoke a feeling, and it's not fake. It's like it's authentic. It's their, their own experience, um, and I guess more of that needs to be either advertised or show or showcased. Yeah, no, I think you're you're right. There's definitely that, and um, I think museums are trying to do more of that work. Um, 
Anyway, I'm not here to save them. Um, <laughs> but I think some of them are trying to do more of that work. But um, I think you're right. There does need to be more of a dialogue because actually, so you have um, different displays. So, you know, the kind of smaller individual mm-hmm. rooms at like the permanent or kind of um, semi-permanent displays that you'll go to. And so a lot of them will be kind of historic art, but kind of, um, even for example, if you go to the Tate Britain, right, um, kind of they'll give you a map and that will show you the starting point mm. of where the earliest work from, I think, I think, I think is it like pre-1400s? I can't remember, but they, they have a map which shows you so you can walk around and then get to the present day or you can go okay. directly to the present day. So kind of that's something which, um, again, maybe most people aren't aware of, but kind of, yeah, there's a cheat code basically. There is a way to okay, you, you, you don't have to, you know, see the old stuff, but if you want to, it's there. Mm. Um, and again, I'm just using these as examples because I've worked there, but at Tate Modern, um, that is a focus on international art. So the majority of the work there is by living artists. Of course, some of them have maybe, you know, passed in recent years, but um, it is kind of more contemporary art. Yeah, I mean, Tate Britain does that too, mm. but kind of focused on British art because it's the Tate Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I completely agree with you that kind of there should be more showing of younger living artists. There, there is, but again, it's um, whether or not that's made visible to people because I think for people who are approaching art for the first time, they might be less familiar with who these people are and the fact that... Um, I don't know, um, there are lots of really young artists who are on show at some of these kind of um, kind of more well-known or established galleries as part of group shows and things. Um, and so you find um, kind of some of the commercial galleries like I work at, mm-hmm. um, which are also, who also, in thinking about this broader arts ecosystem, do the work of, looking after the artists um, that you find in the big nationals on that? a day-to-day basis, right? What does that mean? So kind of the national museums and galleries, so to speak, they have a collection, right? A vast collection of works. They do the job of putting on exhibitions which might last, I don't know, anywhere from three to six months, but then they also have their um, kind of permanent displays, which I just spoke to. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the works in their collection are either acquired through like an acquisition committee. So each acquisition committee maybe has like a particular focus. So I don't know if it's like Middle Eastern art, African art, um, British art or kind of film, performance, whatever. And they will perhaps put forward works. They will have a discussion kind of collectively with a group of people who are, um, I suppose, qualified or have the knowledge or the research um, kind of knowledge to make a decision as to whether or not Uh, why this work should enter the collection, why they should spend the money on that. And so, of course, once those works enter the collections, they're not always going to be shown because there are so many, which is why you have these kind of rotating displays or why you have these exhibitions which bring together particular narratives Mm -hmm. um, that kind of a curator or kind of um, a group decide that they want to highlight. So there's that side of things. And then the commercial galleries is uh, kind of... I suppose where the money goes round, commercial galleries do the job of representing artists. So um, 
if we think about like the music industry or whatever, maybe like a similar in that context that kind of um, kind of uh, um, kind of commercial galleries. They will have a focus um, on kind of what type of artists they represent. So they might be from a particular time period. They might also represent kind of an artist estate. And so when we're talking of an artist estate, it is um, kind of all of the work to do with an artist who's maybe passed away, right? Okay. So there's that. And what they will do um, based on that is to, in their locations, in their galleries, is to put on shows which last... Um, a lot less time than the nationals because their shows might last anywhere between four to six weeks, right? Mm -hmm. But that is a means of um, exposing that artist to a broader audience and they will do the job of then talking to museums kind of locally and internationally to be like, hey, we've got this really great mm, artist. They should perhaps be part of your collection or working with private collectors. So these private collectors who are just people who really appreciate art and kind of want to buy these artworks and live with them in their homes. So cool. kind of they will do the work of um, building up a great client base or buy the work. And some of those clients might keep the work mm -hmm. or they might donate it to a museum, um, which then kind of becomes part of that museum's collection. So that's kind of... Uh, in a very condensed way they're separate but they're not separate at the mm -hmm. same time they are kind of they go hand in hand because without the commercial galleries um you wouldn't really have the museums um and the artists themselves wouldn't be able to survive day to day without the sales of their work so kind of it's all part of one big ecosystem got it so with with like the rise of nfts mm -hmm. digital art are you seeing that impact, say, the physical art world in terms of like either how valuable certain pieces are or the general the general consensus of what is deemed as art as what is deemed as good? Um, and it's generally like what is what is great? Because I feel like when you have a lot of different things, a lot of things mm -hmm. um, that it can devalue on the same side of things. Um, and I just want to get your sense of like where you see things are going in general, like with digital. Um, I think the digital space is um, really interesting. Um, I won't lie, I'm not paying like too much attention to <laughs> it. I, I think for me, I saw more of the kind of NFT stuff pop up during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, that that weird period of time when everyone was on Clubhouse. Yeah, um, yeah so I kind of um, got to hear and find out a little bit more about NFTs in those spaces. And I would say kind of post that and those conversations, I haven't, I haven't seen what I would think is an influx of mm -hmm. kind of people having conversations around uh, kind of NFTs, the conversation is still ongoing, but in the art space, I don't think it's made like a huge impact just yet because people are still buying the physical artwork. Um, that's very much uh, a thing which is ongoing, something that people really enjoy because the idea of living with something is maybe that's much more appealing to, to people than kind of just the digital aspect of it. I think I think kind of NFTs can be really interesting in, I suppose the conversation around um, 
I suppose uh, if something gets resold, this idea that an artist gets a cut of it. Um, so as a means of tracking, I think it can mm. be really useful. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose that's one facet of it. And then you you mentioned AI as well. Yeah, like because because um, obviously we're p- if if people want to start collecting art mm-hmm. and investing in art and physical works can be more expensive just generally, whereas like AI generative generate generative generative art can be quite cheap, can be quite accessible. Um, you can give it some prompts, it will give you what, you, what you're looking for, but you miss, say, the, the creativity of the actual individual. So mm-hmm. I guess like with that happening, where should someone start if they want to start collecting art, right? Mm. Should they go towards a digital work where, where there could be more upside in the future or more focus on say the physical stuff? Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's a great way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, art is an investment, but I think first and foremost, it should be about what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. I think people often, I think people who go for art as investment kind of straight off the bat will often end up disappointed because um, it, I suppose it's this idea that if you buy something, you're just like, yeah, I'm going to flip it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make, I don't know, 20K off of it or whatever. Um, if it doesn't happen like that, then you are left with a disappointment. And so in that circumstance where it doesn't sell, can you still live with that thing? Mm. So I think that's why it's always important to first start with, do I like this thing? Yeah, yeah. Am I okay with looking at it every morning when I wake up? You know, that I think that's kind of the best place to start. Um, of course, um, some people do end up selling um, artworks, but actually most of the collectors that I've come across don't want to sell mm. the stuff because they've got such a deep uh, kind of personal um, and emotional connection to the work. So for them, it's like, Actually, I really love this thing. It might not be on show all the time, but I have a really deep connection um, with that. And actually, um, that's something that we try to... I don't know, I think some people try to avoid um, in kind of selling too much of the work. Mm. Yeah, it's that whole idea of flipping, kind of. You're just buying to kind of just sell it. Um, mm. And that can that can be really not a nice experience for the artist either. Um, and kind of seeing their But work. they need to make a living as well, right? Like they, they, do. they need the art to sell in order to make They something. do, they do. But kind of those sales primarily come from galleries. As put, like okay. if, if, it, if let's say you buy an artwork now, right? Let's say in like six years time, you decide to sell it. Um, if, I don't know, if there is um kind of lots of interest in that particular um artist's work and the price i don't know let's say it's tripled since kind of you bought the work or whatever you would see that profit but the artist might Mm. not um actually i think there might be some european laws that um an artist might get like a cut of that um but kind of generally um, they might not, so it doesn't necessarily always benefit the artist. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes um, the selling of work can be really harmful. So, kind of the same way in which kind of we look at like stock markets. Like, if like a whole bunch of like works of one artist come to the market mm-hmm. suddenly, then kind of devalues everything else. It can yeah. do. Do you get what I mean? Um, which then puts the artist in. Um, a really tricky position because then it's like, oh, no one wants their work, you mm. know. So, um, so when we see like some 
um, artists where their stuff has gone for auction for like $800,000, for example. Mm. On the headline, it sounds amazing, but in reality, they might not be seeing half of that money at least. Yeah, um, they they probably won't. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that can be both a positive and negative thing. I suppose it depends on where you are in your career. Um, kind of whether or not it's a positive or a negative thing, but also just because um, just because an artwork sells for kind of a particular amount um, at auction doesn't mean that that's automatically where the work will start selling at. Yeah. So kind of, um, yeah. I mean, the markets are a complex thing. I'm just starting to understand, or kind of starting on a journey of understanding that. Um, but yeah, it's it's very complex, and I don't think that there's necessarily like one thing which mm. um i suppose impacts that by itself oh well, you're in a good place <laughs> <laughs> so um i think now like if you were to go back to like the younger version of you so like, mm. like 10 years ago or something like that would you still go through the steps you went through in terms of like interior design this and the other in order to find being a curator or would you just say you know what be a curator Oh, no, absolutely. Do you know, I'd do it again. Yeah. I would. I would definitely do it again. So much of what I'm doing now wouldn't wouldn't have happened the way that it's happened without kind of all of those steps, the ways in which I think or the ways in which I approach um, my curatorial practice now comes from that breadth of experience. So, yeah, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd do it again. Do it again. Okay, I'm going to ask you... Can I ask quick fire questions? All right, cool. I'm gonna ask you quick fire questions. Quick fire yeah. questions. No. <laughs> um, so, if you could curate or collaborate with mm. any historical figure to do an exhibition with them, who would it be? Ooh. Oh my god, a historical figure. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. I like people who are alive. Okay, who is someone alive then? <laughs> Uh, don't ask me that. <laughs> um, um, oh my gosh, that is so tricky. Um, God, I feel like the people that like immediately pop to mind. Uh, um, You've already worked with them. No, I haven't. I no. haven't actually. But like uh, people like the Astor Gates, Ellen Gallagher. Um, yeah, yeah, those would be like two people that I'd be interested in in working with. They're amazing. Okay. And um, if you could connect, say, the art world with another industry yeah. to make like a crazy exhibition, what would it be? Um, okay, the, the one that I would, that I'd be most interested in is, you know, again, very, it's very well kind of traversed, but is with fashion. I think mm -hmm. it's... Um, Super, super interesting how fashion and art continue to have conversations. So, um, yeah, fashion, yeah. art, architecture, all that good stuff. And final one, what advice would you give to your younger self? The piece of advice that I would give is that the worst thing they can say is no. Yeah. That's it. That's a constant theme. Yeah. yeah the yeah. worst thing they can say is no. They say no, you pick yourself up and go again, find someone else who's going to give you a yes. Don't stop hustling. There we are. Nice <laughs> up. As cool. always. Thank you, Fedju. It's You're been amazing. Welcome. Appreciate Thank it. You.